Take your Bibles to turn to that Matthew 5 passage, if you would again. Let me also announce that we have, for the Easter drama, we have a nursery sign-up available. We need your help to work those three nights to help all those who are in the performance and those who come to it. So if you could sign up down the nursery area uh, for helping out during the Easter musical drama, that'd be fantastic. Also, we have a Garden of Eden this year, and we would love to have you be a part of it. We have that at our other property, Faith Farm property. Uh, we have a number of plots still available, and you can sign up for those as well. So please remember the nursery sign-up and the Garden of Eden sign-up. Appreciate that. If you have any questions about the nursery, see Chrissy Proctor. Matthew chapter 5. Page 810, if you're using a pew Bible. Could it be she clutched the child so fiercely to her chest that it sent forth a cry? She turned her eyes downward at the scarlet letter and even touched it with her finger to assure herself that the infant and the shame were real. Yes, these were her realities. All else had vanished. Those are lines taken from Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 novel, The Scarlet Letter. If you know the story, it centers in on a woman named Hester Prynne, who lived in 7th century Puritan Boston. Prynne is forced to live every day under the cloud of disgrace and shame after giving birth to an illegitimate child. The laws of Puritan society in that day in which she lived required her to wear a scarlet-colored A upon all of her garments as a constant reminder to her and everyone else who saw her that she was an adulteress. It, It brought great shame to her. And as she said, these were her realities. Can I juxtapose that with another story far more recently in American society? True story. This was from an article entitled, Is Anyone Faithful Anymore? It was the story of a young woman who went out to lunch with 11 of her friends, a dozen of them total, and all their children were in preschool, and so they decided during their free time during the day They would get together once a week to study French together. So as they were studying together and people were talking, one of the ladies around the table brought up this question. How many of you have been faithful to your husband throughout your marriage? Out of all the 12 ladies around the table, only one raised her hand. That evening, the young woman went home and rehearsed for her husband the conversation that had taken place. And she had to admit that she was not the one who raised her hand. Her husband was immediately shocked and devastated and said, what happened? She goes, oh, no, 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 you've got it wrong. She goes, I have been faithful to you. And he said, well, why didn't you raise her hand? She says, I was ashamed to. What a difference. You know, years and years ago, it was a shame to have committed adultery. And in our day, it's a shame that you have not. You used to do, people used to do everything they could to hide their infidelity. And now it is at times nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, and for many, a badge of honor. In fact, I read this week 
an article in Psychology Today, which is a magazine, this magazine that still runs today. In the July 2013 issue, it said, this is the, the title of it, was Healthy Adultery. It said, you have to come to realize that some people who have extramarital affairs do so as an alternative to divorce. In other words, they're doing it in order to stay in their marriage. The article went on to say that there are both healthy and unhealthy reasons for adultery. The healthy ones are, it's an opportunity for your spouse to express curiosity and have a time of personal growth and maturity. The article went on to say at the end, ironically, in some cases, marriages can be strengthened by an affair. You can actually have a better marriage after adultery has taken place. That's what the article said. But I'm not done. I also found articles this week that were entitled this. Is adultery in your DNA? It said this. Here's one. Infidelity genes. Do you have the cheating gene? Studies have shown recently that a lot of people commit adultery and are unfaithful to their spouse and even their marriages in an adultery. And the problem is not in their hearts, but in their DNA. Christians have DNA. It's called do no adultery. <laughs> Don't laugh. Because every one of us in here has committed heart adultery, haven't we? And we talked about that last week. And it's easy to think because we have not committed the act of adultery that we are innocent. Certainly it's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught nothing of DNA for cheating. He didn't think adultery was something to better your marriage. In fact, he said it will destroy it. And everything that Jesus said was countercultural in his day. And can I say, it will be no less countercultural in our day. But to properly understand Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 in particular, we have to understand a little bit about the social and theological controversy in which Jesus stated his position, God's position, the biblical position on divorce. If you would take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus quotes from it in our Matthew 5 passage when he says in verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus got that from the well and hotly debated divorce passage in Deuteronomy 24. I thought it was worth our time to read it. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. That's a key phrase. Rabbi Akiba said that he believed that meant that if you could find a woman that's more beautiful than the one that you are married to, that God gives you the right to divorce her and marry the more beautiful one. That's not a joke. That's the truth. Because he has found some indecency in her. And that's the, that, that's the phrase that caused all the turmoil. Some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife and then form, 
then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That was the text in the Torah that Jesus quotes. Basically, during this time, there were two views on the phrase of some indecency. It's the liberal conservative debate. There was one rabbi whose name was Hillel, and the school of Hillel said this, and they viewed the phrase some indecency in the widest sense possible. And I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why they thought that phrase meant you could divorce your wife. Not all of them, and there are many of them. And if I told you most, most of them, again, you would probably have to keep from laughing. But they said some indecency could mean anything that the husband dictated that was indecent. Some of them included, if you spoiled his dinner, you could divorce your wife. Down to, it says, that you burnt the toast. You could, if she wore her hair down in public, you could divorce her. If she spoke to other men while in public on the streets, you could divorce her. Thus, if you were a good rabbi, you would never talk to a woman in public, and you would not even allow your wife to walk next to you. She must walk numerous steps behind you in public. That's why when Jesus sat at the, with the woman at the well in the middle of the day, and the, and the disciples come back, and they're, they're aghast that Jesus would talk to her, especially since she's a Samaritan, by themselves. I mean, it was unheard of. Jesus would not have been highly thought of for that. So, and on and on the list goes. That was the widest school, the school of Hillel, who was the liberal. They could pretty much do anything that the husband found indecent, and he could divorce his wife. The more conservative school was the school of Shammai, and they limited the phrase, some indecency, to offenses of, and I quote, marital inappropriateness short of adultery. Everyone agreed adultery was it. I mean, there's no one debating that. But for them, indecency meant something that referred to a sexual misconduct of some sort, like exposure or something along those lines, but not adultery, but anything close to that. Adultery was a given. That's why if you turn to, if you would at this point, Matthew 19, let me show you how that plugs into our passage and why it's crucial to understand Jesus' view on divorce and remarriage. Because basically, as you can imagine, in the human heart, the most popular view, as you can guess, was the Hillel view, which meant some indecency could be anything. You know, women couldn't divorce, by the way, so we're only talking a one-sided, one-way street here. We're talking about men divorcing because women didn't have that right. So in the text that we read, Jesus tells, they, they're asking Jesus to enter this long-standing debate, okay? And in the text, it says, the large crowds come to him and the Pharisees ask, is it, is it lawful, verse 3, to divorce one's wife? Now, see the little phrase? For any cause. See that? Because that's what everyone pretty much bought into. That was the popular view. Any cause, New King James says, for any reason. And all those ones, the spoiled meals, wearing your hair down in public, talk, all those reasons and many other ones that you could come up with, your wife wasn't beautiful enough, whatever it was. That was what everybody bought into. That was what everyone was used to practicing. And Jesus says, in response to that, he doesn't come away with an answer. Instead, he answers it with a text. And Jesus quotes Genesis 2.23 and verse 24. And and hear me, because I'm going to make a contrast. Jesus is going to tell us this morning, as he told his audience, here is God's heart when it comes to marriage. 
Okay, get this, because he's going to contrast in a minute with the human heart and how a lot of people, if not most people, would view marriage left up to their sinful heart. Okay, so this is going to be a contrast between two hearts. Now, God's heart is, and he uses this little phrase that brackets the text in 19.4 and 19.8. He says this, but from the beginning, see, Jesus says, let me go back to God's original intent when it came to comes to Torah. When it comes to marriage, God says marriage was to have intimacy. The two shall become one flesh. It's a quotation of Genesis 2, 23 and 24. He says the deepest human relationship there is, is marriage and the intimacy ought to be protected. There should be no adultery, no third person, nobody, no how, anytime. That's the model. That's God's desire. That's God's perfect design. And even though our culture in so many ways that I won't even go into this, has deviated from that, God's word still holds true. Right? So that's the intent. God said marriage intimacy, Jesus says, and then he approaches marriage permanency because he says, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Right? So the last words a pastor says, I've done many times at the end of a marriage, he, I, we quote those things. What God has put together, let no man put asunder, and then you say, you kiss your bride. You know why? Because the last thing you want to leave in their mind is what you're doing is forever, as far as this world is concerned. I had the chance with Dave Crompton to go over and visit Tony DeQuinzio and his wife Lucy, who are longtime members of our church, well up into their 90s. Uh, Tony will be 95 in July. And Lucy is 94. You should have seen Lucy. It was hilarious. We were talking about Dave. We are talking I both about getting old. I mean, far younger than her, at least I am. But um, she, she would say, Pastor Crompton, she, 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 she was talking to her, laughing a little bit, and she would get up off the couch, she would stand up, she would sit down, she would get back up, she, she, she would walk around, she goes, look, she goes, I'm as spry as I've ever been. I'm like, whoa, girl, come on, slow down there, you know. But she was, she could get up and do, you know, she's losing a little bit in her memory, but you know, overall, she's really good, and Tony, he didn't get off the couch, he only, only 40% of his heart works. But he was so thankful, all he could do is praise God about how good he's been. He even told me last summer when Lucy was watching um, Charles Stanley on TV that she finally gave her life to the Lord and got saved at the age of 93 and while her mind was still good. But you know what he told me? He goes, Pastor Walker, I'm so excited. We just celebrated 70 years of marriage. 70 years. Now, that's a sharp relief to the average length of marriage today. The average length in America is seven years. Seven, 70. My parents, I'm so thankful before my dad passed away, they were married for 60 years. So that's a little discouraging to my wife because we're at 32. (laughs) Which means, honey, you're only halfway there. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience. Yeah, right? patience. But the Pharisees said this, if if the only reason that you can get a divorce, I mean, you got 70 years ahead of you, and the only thing that you can divorce your wife for is if she's unfaithful, that's it? Then why did Moses give them a certificate of divorce, they asked Jesus. And Jesus answers that question in our text in 19.8, and he says this to them. Ready? Because of your hardness of heart. 
It wasn't God's original design. That's not part of the blueprint that God designed for marriage. In fact, Malachi says that God hates divorce. But listen, God also understands the human heart. And although it's not commanded, by the way, which the Pharisees wanted to do, they wanted to make that the decency phrase was written and the certificate of divorce was something God commanded them to do. And and Jesus says, no, not commanded, permitted. For one exception, God allows a, a marriage to be dissolved biblically. And that is when your spouse is unfaithful. And the reason that even had to be allowed was because of the hardness of your heart. You see what he's saying? See, here's God's heart. You know what God's heart is? Permanence. Faithfulness. Why? Because marriage in the New Testament would become to be revealed that this is God's relationship to the church. And that you and I, as husbands and wives and people who are married, we have the privilege of being God's picture hanging on the gallery of the world so that they can see what God really wants marriage to picture. And that's his relationship and his love to the church and the church's response to him. That's what's at stake in this. So God said the only exception is unfaithfulness. And that was only given... Because of your heart, not mine, he says. Which doesn't make it illegitimate. It's a real exception. But nevertheless, here's what God says. My heart is this. Your heart is that, he says. So I would tell you this morning, you know why divorce and adultery happen? Because the further we move away from God's heart and allow our own hearts to take over, the more we will have adultery and divorce in our culture Why? Because everything that is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus wants us to know, is a heart issue. Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8, he says. You can lust and commit adultery in your heart, Matthew 5, 28. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Matthew 6, 21. And Jesus wants us to know that even the way we approach marriage and its permanency and how we love each other, even when adultery takes place, Jesus says, I want you to know it's beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, which you better have, he says. Because it is a heart issue. But like most cases with our, kinds, with our hearts, our sinful hearts, what God permitted, we turned into permissiveness. And the Bible says that word that describes that kind of heart is hard. And believe it or not, there's a Greek word used here in a couple other places in Mark's gospel. And it's a compound word which means scoliosis of the heart. That's the two words together. We get our English word scoliosis from it. Hardening, unfeeling, inflexible, rigid. See, that's what they had become. They had taken what God permitted and turned it into permissiveness and it had made their hearts hard. They had scoliosis of the heart. Can I tell you, beware, because that kind of heart condition still exists today and that kind of heart scoliosis leads to adultery and oftentimes as a result to divorce. And one of the biggest, can I say, the biggest, problem with someone who gets hardening of the heart is pornography. If you have arteriosclerosis, it's when your blood vessels, this is from a medical journal, that carry oxygen from the heart to other parts of the body become narrowed. And it's because of fat deposits that we call plaque. 
And that plaque, over time, grows and it builds up. And when it does, it reduces oxygen and blood supply to the eyes, to the kidneys, to your legs, and ultimately to your heart, and can cause heart attacks, even fatal heart attacks. And can I tell you, one of the worst types of plaque is the plaque of pornography. Looking at things that are deceptive, that are lies, that ruin your life and all of those that you love. Jesus says, see, it's over time. We allow things in our life to harden our hearts, to make us indifferent, to make us callous and hard and unfeeling. That's what takes place, Jesus says. And he warned us about it because the two passages go together. See, he says, you can commit adultery two ways. You can divorce your wife without biblical grounds, and you can commit adultery by lusting in your heart. And can I tie them together today? Because they go together. I can't tell you how many times I have sat in an office with a wife and sometimes the husband crying and the reason their life are going to split up and go opposite ways is because of pornography. Jesus says it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Divorce for sexual immorality by a spouse is permitted. Not commanded, it's permitted. It's my prayer that if that ever happens to any of you, that you would use that exception not as a way out, but as a way through problems. And I know that it always doesn't work that way, and I understand that. And certainly I would not stand here this morning and minimize adultery in any way, shape, or form, or any of its horrible effects. But I think all of us do well to heed the admonition of guard your heart. We need to stop divorce at the desires level, and that would mean lust. Because to guard your heart is to guard your home. And if you haven't done so, you should. You should not allow your children to have a phone or a TV in their room. You shouldn't. You should put blockers on the internet. And you should care about what social media your children use. And you should monitor it. It doesn't matter if they like it or not. You know why? Because you're guarding their heart. We live in a in a day, in an age, and this is what C.S. Lewis says, we live in a day where there freely flows a river of filth. And that is what our culture is all about. And that is why marriages last an average of seven years, part of the reason, and why divorce is so rampant. But you know what Jesus says? I have a different kind of people. I have a people with a beyond righteousness, not an external obedience of the rules only kind of righteousness, but a people that have been changed, a people that have been transformed from the inside out. It's a new kind of people, a people with kingdom righteousness. And that righteousness is different than the ones of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness that starts in the heart and goes to the hands. That's what Jesus says. And if you're here this morning, can I say... That if you've been in a divorce situation, it is not the unpardonable sin. And nor should we treat people as if it is. And I do not believe that you have to exchange the scarlet A for a scarlet D. Meaning divorce. I wouldn't downplay how God sees it and the seriousness of it. But I also know this. That our God is a forgiving God. Our God is a merciful God. In fact... The Bible says many times in the Old Testament, who is a God like unto ours, 
who pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his people. My Sunday school class this morning on Jeremiah 3 and Isaiah 50 in verse 1 was how God divorced his own people Israel. And he did so because of their spiritual adultery and wickedness and their unfaithfulness to him. But you know what the Bible says? That God will take them back someday. And the picture of Hosea and Gomer and God telling him to take her back and be faithful to her, even when she's been unfaithful to you, is really the picture of God's heart. I love reading John 8. I love reading the story about the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And she is thrown down at the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees, wanting to catch Jesus in a quandary that he couldn't get out of, says, what should we do? The law, Moses says to Stoner, but what do you say? And Jesus says, write something in the sand. I, I could tell you what I think it is. The Bible doesn't say what it is. I think he's writing as if, and it says in particular that he's writing with his finger in the sand, just like God wrote the, the, with his finger when he wrote the commandments. And what I think Jesus is doing is says, here's the law. Throw a stone if you've kept it. And they couldn't. Because you know what Jesus would say? He would say it's sin because he told her, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't tolerate iniquity. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't minimize it. But he also is friend of sinners. And Jesus didn't throw a stone. He said, where are those who accuse you? She says, nowhere. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Aren't you glad for the text in Romans 8, which says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what? We sang nothing but the blood for a reason because it's the hope. It's the hope of all those who have committed sexual sin, all those who have committed adultery, all those who have ruined and destroyed families and live in the wake of all of it because there is forgiveness in Jesus. And may I say today as we close that even though the exception clause is true, and God allows for divorce and remarriage based on that exception clause, that there are some things that we could keep in mind as we close today, and I enumerated them one through four. First, can I say to you as kindly as I can and as strongly as I can, we have to resist the permissiveness of our culture and its view of sexuality and marriage. We must take a stand, and it goes way beyond marriage between a husband and a wife to even many, many other things. And we cannot be too careful, literally, we cannot be too careful about the movies and the books and the things that we and our children read. We must be on top of what takes place if our children are in our public schools and what they are being taught. Daily in the news, more and more things are pouring in about what your children will be taught that are completely contrary and opposite to what the Word of God says. The evil one would seek to destroy the foundations of one of the most prized institutions of Christianity, marriage. And if you're not careful, that can infiltrate your home in so many, so many seductive ways. Number two, we must refrain from self-righteous judgmentalism. And by that I mean this. All of us have committed adultery of the heart. All of us. Not one. Not one person in this world is an exception to that, only our Lord Jesus. 
And knowing that we have desires that we have not always responded well to, may that allow us, for those who have committed adultery, not only in the heart, but in the body and in action, may we also say to them, God loves you, you need to repent, but God loves you and wants to forgive you, and so do we. So do we. Thirdly, we have to realize that not only do we forgive those who have committed this sin, but we must show them that we are with them in their suffering and in their difficulty because they may sin and repent, but that will not stop and ask people to this day who are still hurting. Even if they were the victim in the situation, they're still hurting from divorce and all the ramifications and consequences of it. It is a painful and at times an ongoing painful difficulty. But the Bible encourages us and exhorts us actually to weep with those who weep. And we should. We should be sensitive enough to care about those who have gone through those difficult times in their lives. And lastly, can I say this? Because the Bible allows divorce for the exception of sexual immorality, it also, the Bible says, allows for remarriage. And there are those who have been the victim of the horrible sin of adultery by someone else, and God has brought them through it. And if they are able to, by God's leading and grace, to find a spouse who will be faithful to them and join with them in serving and loving the Lord, we should rejoice with them because God is good. I, I, I want today, as we close, to have you leave here and you do two things. We're going to welcome in a few people in just a few moments at the end of our service. What I'd like you to do is pray. Can you pray for two things as we close today? First of all, can you pray for your heart? Pray for your heart. You know what? And say, God, you know what? I'm thankful right now because my marriage is good. Things are going really well. But you know what, God? I need to guard my heart, my spouse's heart, my children's heart. I need to care about those things. You know what? Perhaps it's been laxity and that has not really been a priority in your home or in your own life. Can I tell you, go back and change that today. Guard your heart, Proverbs says, for out of it are the issues of life. Guard it. Don't let the evil one get in your home through all those awful ways of sinful desires. I may also say this, and pray for the hearts of those who struggle in this because of what's taken place in their divorce. Pray for them, that God would not allow them to let these circumstances push them away from him, but rather use it to draw him closer so that they can stay faithful to him as he's been to them. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Jesus' clarity. On a day when divorce was permissible for so many things, Jesus said, truthfully, it's only one thing. And even then, if possible, we could be gracious and merciful. Father, we want to conclude our day today But just thinking about our own hearts, it's easy to focus on someone else and think because we haven't acted out on these things that we're innocent. Father, our hearts are evil, the Bible says. If we're not careful, our hearts can push us away from you. And we can go down roads that we thought we'd never go down. And it doesn't matter how many years we've been married. I pray for strong marriages and families here at Faith Baptist Church. Because men and women are seeking to have your heart in their home. Help us to that end. And Father, for those today who are here in our church at Faith Baptist and have struggled in the past or are struggling now, 
Father, I pray for them because of their home situation and the difficulty and the pain that's gone through their hearts and minds through this divorce and their own lives. Father, I pray that you would be their strength. I pray that they would stay faithful to you, that circumstances and situations wouldn't dictate that this is their identity, a scarlet D is not who they are, but rather they are not condemned in Christ Jesus. And neither do we condemn them, but we love them because you have loved us. And we want to show your grace and your mercy because that's what you did in response to our sin. May we have that heart toward you and toward others that we might truly be more like our Savior Jesus. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. We're going to